Okay, so the Napier Street toilet is a pestilent vice hole stuck in the middle of Footscray, said Councillor Bill Kelly in a 1959 Footscray Council meeting. He said it was an educational centre for perverts of the future. He said he wanted it blown up. The toilets were shut down, but they weren't blown up. They're right here on a nature strip in what's now called Mechanics Way. There's nothing here, though. All right, well, that's because they're underground toilets. The council shut their doors and filled them in and planted grass over the top. And most people forgot they were ever here. But they are still here, pretty much intact, underfoot. When they were built in 1936, toilets were often put underground for decency. The idea was that nobody should have to actually see the toilets. But there was this tension. Privacy around bodily functions is decent, is respectable. But when there's too much privacy, that creates perverts. And a vice hole! So when they say perverts, do they mean queers? I mean, I assume so, but it's kind of hard to tell. I guess in historical sources, it's often really hard to tell what people mean by indecency or obscenity or perversion. I mean, it could be something to do with queerness, or it could be pissing in the street, or it could be sexual assault. It's this undifferentiated blob of sexual transgression. Yeah, and it's sad as a, as a queer person um, going through the archives. You know that queer people have always existed, but it's hard to find unambiguous evidence of that. And when you do, it's often tied to this idea that we're inherently a sexual threat. It's depressing, honestly. That's so often the case with history, though, isn't it? I feel that looking at the White Australia Policy photo archives as well, and even reading court records, often we can only find ourselves in the archives because of criminality, because of policing. The only documentation you have is from these hostile encounters with the state. It's bittersweet. Which brings us to another ambiguously queer incident in local history. So looking straight across the street from here, you can see a modern-ish building housing the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. But in 1908, that site was a venue for hire called Federal Hall, where a number of single-sex balls were held. The first few were for women. There were costume balls with half the guests dressed as men, and they would romance the guests dressed as women. And that got mocked by Punch, a culture magazine. But when Footscray men decided to have a men-only ball, Punch was like, all right, this is not a joke anymore. They started using language like, we can only have sniggering contempt for the men who would participate in such a thing. The Footscray media didn't take the Punch article that seriously. They reprinted the whole thing with this introduction that was basically, get a load of these guys, doing everything so seriously. I really enjoyed that, the um, OK Boomer energy of the Footscray paper's response. So these balls were queer, right? I mean, you'd have to assume for some participants, yeah, they were. But it was all in this kind of realm of plausible deniability. Right up until the post-war period, drag in Australia was completely mainstream entertainment. It was seen by most people as just costume, nothing to do with sexuality or gender identity. You have to remember as well that drag performers were often part of variety shows that included minstrel performers and yellow face acts and Jewish impersonators, that kind of thing. That's something that's really important to highlight here, that racist mocking element historically to this kind of theatre and play. Yeah, wow. I mean, I guess you still sometimes see that in drag. Yeah, you do. And the same sex balls were like that too. People weren't just in drag, they were playing a role, having a laugh. So if you were actually using this role play to try out a different gender or sexual role in a maybe more sincere way, you could hide in plain sight. 
Yeah, well, there's definitely a lot of hiding in plain sight in all of these stories. If we go up Nicholson Street a bit from here, there's a park you can enter on your right just before the railway bridge. That's Railway Reserve. In 1942, Moira James, the first ever female organiser for the Munition Workers' Union, organised a rally in Railway Reserve of munition factory workers who were predominantly young women. Moira was also a communist. The local MP, a Labour Party man called Jack Mullins, described her as a communist Amazon, strong in physique, but doubtful in her femininity. And talking about Moira's work organising young women factory workers, Mullins said, a decent, refined, unsophisticated girl suddenly finds herself in an environment due to the war, working in an industry where she can be bossed, body and soul, by a domineering creature such as Moira James. God, he really attacks her as this predatory butch character. It's pretty wild. I would love it if she was actually a lesbian, but we have no real evidence either way. Um, It's basically just an attempt to use homophobia to discredit her as an organiser. It's interesting how he sort of projects worker exploitation onto the union organiser too, boss to body and soul. Like, we all know this kind of attack, the way it paints her as not a real woman, but instead a threat to women. Obviously, that happens a lot to trans women, butch women, black women, intersex women, even now. You see it in the transphobic debates around toilets. You see it in women's sport. It's this idea that you have to exclude all these women to protect real women. There's a very specific type of woman who's worthy of protection, and usually it's not a real woman. It's a mythical figure of frailty that's weaponized against people of color, against trans and intersex people, against women who aren't sufficiently feminine. The real woman is a hypothetical woman. Which is an idea that's often promoted by women themselves, uh, particularly white women, that women, white women, are the pure, respectable, moral guardians of the community as a whole. Which brings us to the temperance movement. So if we go through Railway Reserve and over the railway tracks onto Leeds Street, near the corner of Leeds and Paisley, you can see a building that's currently a mobile phone store. That building was once Temperance Hall, the headquarters of the anti-alcohol movement in Footscray in the late 19th century. This was a really popular movement, especially with women. That's kind of surprising, given that so many of the early buildings in Footscray were pubs. Yeah, the temperance movement was not popular with everyone. During the peak of the temperance movement, there were two firefighting brigades in Footscray, and one was sponsored by local pubs, and one was exclusively for non-drinkers. One time they both arrived at the same fire on Barclay Street, which is just up ahead, but there was only one fire hydrant on the street. They had a full-on street brawl over who'd get to use the hydrant. Um, One guy cracked his skull and nearly died. That's how much drinkers and non-drinkers hated each other's guts. A lot of the people that the temperance advocates came into conflict with were socialists. Footscray was obviously a working class community and it was a heavy drinking one. And many temperance advocates looked at that situation and said, what we need to address here is the drinking. If people would just keep themselves nice, maybe they wouldn't be having the problems with disease and poverty and exploitation that they were having. And socialists, of course, thought that was paternalistic and that the real problem was capitalism. And I definitely agree with that. But the reality is that the drinking culture around here was actually really intense. And it would have been good if, as a community, we'd reflected on that. 
Instead, what happened is that white socialist men leaned into this masculine hard-drinking persona in opposition to the female-dominated temperance leagues. So this kind of Jimmy Barnes, blunny, flanny, moustache, working-class man, footy shorts, etc. vibe. Well, that definitely feels familiar, this way of defining the working class through these subcultural affectations instead of, I suppose, material experience. It doesn't leave a lot of room for anyone else. It's so often a way of making women, migrants and people of colour invisible in the working class and in the labour movement. And it makes entire industries invisible as well, keeping the figure of the worker to a shrinking set of old school blue collar jobs, while exploitation in cleaning, hospitality, care work, call centres and pretty much everywhere else doesn't get the same romanticised attention. Yeah. And that kind of association of working classness with this hypermasculinity is, I think, one of the reasons why homophobia was such an effective line of attack against people like Moira James. And in the same way, white labour activists worked hard to associate working class identity with whiteness. Yeah, if we keep going up Leeds and hit Barclay Hopkins, there were a lot of Chinese businesses here that were prosecuted under the Shops and Factories Act in the late 19th and early 20th century. The act came through in 1896 after a lot of lobbying from white labor activists who basically argued that all Chinese businesses were sweatshops until that got enshrined in law. The act defined a single Chinese person as a factory. Even white people recognized it was pretty unfair. Like obviously that's not really about worker exploitation. In 1902, Ming Sing, a Chinese guy who had a laundry on Hopkins Street near the corner of Leeds was charged because he was ironing late on a Friday night and the act said he couldn't work past 5pm. He tried to say that he didn't work on Mondays and Tuesdays, but Fridays were always busy because he had to get everything done for the weekend. It's basically the worst of both worlds, right? Being a sole trader, but not being able to work your own hours. Anyway, the judge was sympathetic, but Ming Sing still had to pay the fine and costs. Another part of the anti-Chinese movement was the idea that Chinese men were a sexual threat to white women and specifically that they might try and lure white women into sex work. But also there was a lot of this kind of weird, lurid language flying around that implied Chinese men were kind of gay. Yeah, it's that undifferentiated sexual transgression again, right? Like, in the 1800s, the anti-Chinese rhetoric really draws from every well. So because most of the Chinese migrants were men, you see this stuff like, ooh, what do these Chinamen get up to together? alongside panic about protecting white women. So whether or not the sex is paid, whether or not it's consensual, it doesn't really matter because it's all still miscegenation. There's this article from the Footscray paper in 1887 titled The Yellow Agony, and it says that Chinese men's want of moral training is such that they have no objection to clubbing together and maintaining one frail female in semi-luxury but sickening debauchery. They managed to make it sound pretty good, to be honest. But you still see most of the same arguments today, right? Just with some bits rearranged. Yeah, I do actually think it's quite interesting how it's been rearranged. Like these days, Chinese and East Asian men are often desexualized. White nationalists have transferred that sexual threat onto black men and Muslim men. And Asian women are represented as kind of inherently tied to the sex trade, 
whether as trafficking victims or just garden variety gold diggers. That stereotype has faded a little now compared to when I was growing up, but it's definitely still lingering. And then on the Shops and Factories Act too, Australian trade unions still use faux concern for migrant workers to frame them as a threat to Australian workers, to real workers. Which is also interesting because that's exactly the attitude Moira James came across when she was arguing unions should support equal pay for men and women. So fundamentally, Trades Hall Council, the peak trade union body in Victoria, saw their role as protecting men's jobs and working women were a threat to that. Trades Hall only supported equal pay when it became obvious that it wasn't possible to keep women out of men's jobs entirely anymore. But they framed it as about protecting women too from rough or dirty jobs. What a lot of these tensions seem to be about is who has the right to be thought of as a worker rather than a threat to workers. And that threat is often described as a sexual threat. Footscray for most of its history was an industrial centre and people took a lot of pride in that. It was a big part of the community identity. It still is to an extent. So this is a place where tensions over who belongs here, who's respectable, often take the form of who is part of the working class. That's definitely still a tension. At the moment, I'm a freelance writer, which is a strange situation because even though there's a giant glaring power imbalance between me and most of the media companies I write for, I'm supposed to negotiate as if I'm a business and they're my clients, effectively as if I'm a factory. It's really hard to organize as freelancers for a billion reasons, but I think one major barrier is the idea that writers aren't working class, as if we get paid in cultural capital. Which, of course, just means that only rich people get to be writers. Yeah, I've had some similar experiences. So often people will say, ah, Liz, you're very middle class. You're an ex-academic who's read a bit of Deleuze. Um, And then the same people, once they learn that my dad was a plumber, that I grew up in the western suburbs, that I know how to hold the hammer, they'll be like, ah, I see, I was mistaken. You're, in fact, working class. I don't think either of those things are really what class is about. I think class is mostly about money and how you make it. Most people rely on work or welfare to survive. That's what was originally meant by the term working class, right? People who have nothing to sell but their labor. People who have to work. And we have more in common with each other than the people we might be working for. It's beyond disappointing. It's actually just tragic the way that this narrow thinking around the working class can foreclose possibilities for solidarity across gender and race and different industries and ways of working and, of course, across borders. Work is more and more casual and more and more global, so we're doomed if we can't figure out how to reach across. Which is basically why we did this project on Footscray's history. Because we're big communists. We are, we're big communists and we believe in solidarity. And there's so much potential for solidarity across difference in places like Footscray. But to get there, we have to acknowledge the ways we've fucked each other over so we can move beyond those divide-and-conquer politics and focus on the real enemy, focus on our shared enemy. And who's our shared enemy, Liz? People from Yarraville. It's like, who do you think they are? You know, and everyone's like... What will we do when this is over And everything is like it was before we will be walking round on clover instead of sleeping in a bed of straw.